he truly is worthy, and I want to tell you what a joy it is to have been here for Paul's induction. Can you hear me all at the back, all well? I've been electrocuted properly. Good. Well, it has been an enormous pleasure, and I wish Paul all God's blessing and you as a congregation in what is obviously a great city and a great opportunity. 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. Now that is exactly what we're going to do this morning. And for this morning, Elijah, and not myself, Elijah is going to be a teacher. He's going to give us a refresher course in how to pray in the world as it is today and for that world, how to pray when the churches and many church leaders seem to be confused and uncertain, how to pray when it seems that God is raising up, as I see it, a new generation of preachers and pastor teachers, and we want to know how to support them and how to pray for them and how to see the future prayerfully according to the will of God. So I think this refresher course that we're going to have is just ideal for this morning and the wonderful situation that brought us all together yesterday afternoon and that we are celebrating again this morning. I'd like you to have uh, your Bibles open, if you will, uh, at any rate a little later on, because we're going to look very carefully at the text of Elijah's prayer. Now the trouble with these great Old Testament stories, uh, everybody loves them, uh, but the difficulty of course is how to understand them. Uh, you students will know that we live in a culture, an intellectual culture, when everybody's opinion is as good as anybody else's. And so we understand a text like this according to how we understand it, and for us that is good enough. And if the preacher gets up and dogmatically says how he understands it, we in our generation say, well, that's just your interpretation. What safeguard have we in the living churches so that people know that what we're saying from the pulpit, what we're saying in Christianity Explored, what we're saying in conversations and in every opportunity we have is the word of God and not just our bright idea. Well, when it comes to these wonderful Old Testament character studies, of course, the New Testament must be our control. You remember that the risen Lord opened the scriptures to those two on the way to Emmaus, and that's the foundation of the apostolic teaching. During those 40 days, the Lord taught them how to understand their scriptures that they had in their hand, which then was just the Old Testament. He showed them what the meaning of these great stories were and how they all pointed to him. So what we have to do when we come to Elijah is to ask, what does the New Testament, what does the apostolic church, what did the apostles themselves make of Elijah? How did they see him? How did they interpret his work? Well, I know I'm speaking to many of you who are Bible students, many of you know perhaps far more than I do about many of these great stories. And as you will know, the New Testament has a lot to say about Elijah because they see him as a forerunner of that great figure, John the Baptist. 
But I'm going to choose just one New Testament control today, and I'd like you to keep your hand in uh, 1 Kings 18 and just flip over for a moment to James chapter 5. We're going to glance at this only for a moment, but so that we may get under control. In our preaching conferences, we sometimes say to the ministers, are you under control? Are you under the control of the Word of God? And we get under control with Elijah by turning to James chapter 5 and verse 17. And when we do that, of course, we get a shock immediately, don't we? Elijah, it says, was a man just like us. Well, it doesn't like, seem like that to me. I look on Elijah as a John, don't you? And say so he was. But at the same time, he was a man just like us, with the same sort of fears, and we know that from the next chapter. He feared the wrath of his pagan society. And because he was a man just like us, we get the secret of his ministry there in the next sentence. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and so on. He prayed earnestly. So I take it when I read that, that the New Testament wants me to go back to 1 Kings 18 and apply that key to the lock and open the story with that particular clue that Elijah was essentially a man of prayer. So let's go back to 1 Kings 18 and in particular to verse 24, which I think is one of the great key chapters, uh, key verses of the chapter. It's a lovely one. I come back to it very often. Verse 24 of 1 Kings 18, Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by far, he is God. I'm going to leave two words out, because by far no longer applies, of course, to us. So let's read it again. The God who answers, he is God. Now we know already, don't we, in the Old Testament they knew it, the New Testament they know it, we know it, that God is a God who speaks. Right from Genesis 1, God has spoken and his word is powerful. But now in this story of Elijah, we learn again that God is not only a God God who speaks, but one who hears and answers. Of course, Abraham knew that, Moses knew that, and Elijah knew that. But you see the point, don't you? God is not only a God who speaks, but one who hears and listens and answers, and therefore a God with whom, by his condescension, we may have a relationship. In human terms, can you have a relationship with someone who does all the talking, who never listens to what you say? I was in a railway carriage only a few weeks ago, and uh, there was this man with a loud, monotonous voice talking. It went on and on and on, and every now and then, there was obviously somebody else with him sitting there, and a little voice, like a mouse, was saying, but he was immediately squashed, and the voice went on. And just occasionally, the little mouse would answer, yes, thank you very much, I was going to say, no, 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 no. There was no, no, no give. In fact, it was so boring so oppressive to those of us sitting there that despite the fact that the train was crowded, I got up, collected my belongings, and went to another carriage. I couldn't stand it. A hundred miles of relentless talking. (laughs) If I may put that reverently, God is not a God who talks and does not listen. And therefore, we can have a relationship with him. 
we have a God who's willing to hear us. And he was willing to hear that little group of businessmen who had met every week. I don't know how many years they'd met, but they read the Bible, and they prayed, and they gave money to Christian causes. And you know what happens if a group starts to pray like that? Sooner or later, a desire grows up in the group to do a particular thing that is their responsibility. And in this case, they wrote to me and they said, a church is empty, will you come and minister the gospel there? Well, that's another story. But God answered their prayer. Well, you know uh, the part of the story when the Baal prophets get to pray. We won't, uh, we won't stop on that again. It's pretty boring, really. Well, it's wonderfully dramatic, isn't it? There it is in verse uh, 26. They called on the name of Baal from morning to evening. I think they were the kind of people who contradicted what your pastor just said in that lovely prayer when Jesus said, you're not heard for your much speaking. I think these people would have loved all-night prayer meetings. So they went on all day, verse 25, and all afternoon, verse 29. In verse 26, there was a great deal of shouting. In verse 26, again, there was a great deal of liturgical dance. If you look carefully at the text, you'll see in verse 28, they began to lash themselves until the blood flowed out. Have you seen that in pagan uh, um, pagan religions on television when they try to flagellate themselves? Then there was some sympathetic magic, and then in verse 29, the climax was ecstatic prophecy. That went on all day long, and God labeled it as pagan. Pagan prayer. And 29b is just such a delight, isn't it? There was no response. No one answered. No one paid any attention because there was no God there. And then Elijah said to all the people, come to me. Now what I want to do is to compare with that pagan praying, with all its noise and all its nonsense, I want to compare this very quiet and this very short and this marvelously pithy prayer of Elijah's. I'm going to read verse 36 and verse 37 again. I think it's one of the great prayers of the Bible. And I want, in a sense, to give it to you again, though you may know it well, and say, this is how you should be praying for your new pastor. This is how you should be praying for Edinburgh. This is how you should be praying for your neighbors. This is how you should be praying for the university. This is exactly today how to pray in our very needy times as they were then. Verse 36. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. And the fire fell, so evidently God answered. Now I want you to look very carefully with me at this text. I want you to be quite sure that what I am saying is what the Word of God is saying here, because I notice there are three requests, and only three in this prayer. One of them, which is by far the most important, is repeated. 
These three requests are as timely now as they were then. As we discover so often in Scripture, it is bang up to date. If you will pray these prayers, and if you will wait upon God, he will answer them. Here's the first request, which I take to be the priority request, number one. That the people may know who is God, who is the true God. And you'll see that in verse 36, and then it's repeated in verse 7. Answer me, so that these people, O Lord, will know that you are God. Now, the letters G-O-D spell nothing today. People put into those letters exactly what they want. People have no concept of who God really is. Religion, of course, is back on the agenda. You will find a book in the bookstall at the moment, which is very popular, a bestseller, God is Back, written by the editor of The Economist, of all people. I don't know that he's any kind of a Christian, but he and another economist editor, who is himself actually an atheist, have written this book about what is happening in the world today and how God is back on the top of the agenda and how angry the atheists are getting because of it. But as you would expect with two authors like that, there is no discrimination at all. All religions are lumped together. I think one of the interesting things about the book are the statistics. They are quite extraordinary. You know, the percentage of people in America who think Billy Graham wrote the Sermon on the Mount. You wouldn't think anybody did, would you? But apparently there's a percentage of people in America who do think that. And you have all these extraordinary uh, uh, statistics about all the religions of the world and what is going on today. But as you read the book as a Christian, what you say to yourself is confusion, confusion, confusion. This is a context in which the BBC can ask a Hindu to be in charge of religious broadcasting. Do you see? That's the context. Total confusion. I said yesterday that the world can influence us more than we influence the world, and whether we're young or old, this continues to be the case. Once they're in Canaan, God's people are squeezed into the mold of Canaanite religion. They begin to think of their gods, or rather they begin to think of their own god, the Lord, in terms of the gods of the Baals. And that is why in verse 31, if you will glance back, the first thing that Elijah does is to repair the altar which has fallen into decay. He takes 12 stones, one for each of the tribes, descended. Now, please notice the next phrase, which is all important. To whom the Lord, word of the Lord had come, saying, your name will be Israel. You see, God had revealed himself at a particular historical time to a particular people, and that revelation remained formative and normative for the rest of the time of the children of Israel. So that if they were to know God, they had to go back to the beginning and say, what did God say to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel? How did he reveal himself? In other words, God is not revealed by what he says today, but by what he said yesterday. Therefore, we need very much to be careful of those who tell us that God has spoken the word, of, uh, word to them today. So there's a very clear distinction, isn't it? In the Old Testament, the word of God came to the prophet. In the New Testament, the preacher goes to the Word of God. It's a very great difference. The Word of God is now final and fixed. 
It's the revelation God has given, not now to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He is now the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, if we want to keep true to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have to go back to our Lord Jesus Christ and see what the fundamental revelation was given by him, which remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's why in every true Protestant evangelical church, there will be two pieces of furniture. There will be a pulpit, which stands here with an open Bible, by which the minister may take us back to the word of God that has been revealed 2,000 years ago. And then the minister or the elders will stand at a table and take us back to the work of Christ that he did 2,000 years ago. The point of these two bits of furniture is to take us back to the final word and the finished work. On that foundation, we measure everything we hear today by that foundation. That is why every day, we go, every Lord's Day, we go back. And that keeps us uh, straight. That keeps us able to discern and de deal with the confusions that there are today. Once the pulpit is a place where a man can say, God has spoken to me and I want to speak that word to you, we are in Baal country all over again. And once a priest stands at a table and makes it into an altar and says that he is effecting a sacrifice for our sins today that will be operative, we know that we have returned to Baal country. You see the difference? So this first prayer is obviously one of the very greatest importance. Actually, it's not the only one in the Bible, is it? Going back to Abraham, Isaac, and uh, Israel. I hope when you read your Bible, you will notice the way that God is constantly defined. Some of you may be old enough, like me, to remember the wartime Brains Trust, when there was a character called Professor Jode. And when the question came up to the Brains Trust, Professor Jode always used to say, well, it depends what you mean by and mention the main uh, uh, word of the question. And that's the same in the Bible. All the time the Christian is saying, it depends what you mean by God. I mean the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But there are other ways, aren't there? Flip over, if you will, to Psalm 121. This is just at random, really. You could find this anywhere in the Old Testament. I'm going to read verse 1, and I'm expecting you to read verse 22 uh, without looking at your Bible. No cheating. Psalm 120, verse, verse 1. I'm going to cheat, I'm going to look, but you mustn't. All right? Yes, I see some of you are already. Uh, you're very wise. Don't let the reputation of the chapel down now. Right? I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Did you notice the definition? My help comes from the Lord. What Lord are we talking about? We're talking about the maker of heaven and earth. In other words, we're talking about the Creator. I'm not going to ask you to turn to this, but uh, Paul, you will have heard many memories of Broughton Knox when you were at Moore College, Sydney. He was a principal there and a great character. And one of the verses in Jeremiah that he was always banging into the heads of his students was Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 11. Don't bother to turn it up, but you may like just to note it down and look it up afterwards, Jeremiah 10, 11. Let me read it to you. And it compares the gods of the nations around Israel with the true God. 
All right? Jeremiah 10, 11. Tell them this. These gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the earth. These gods who are not creators, who are actually creations of man's imagination, as Paul said on the Athenian hill, they will perish, and they have. I doubt if there's a single student or young people here who can tell me the name of some of the detestable gods of the nations around Israel. Their names have perished, as they have perished. What is the distinction there? It's the distinction between a God who is, the crea- who is created by our imagination, and there's something of that within many Christian churches, and God the creator who has told us and revealed who he is and what he wants. So in our world today, the word G-O-D, God, is a word of confusion. It is so in educational circles, it is so in the media, It is so sometimes amongst churches. Timothy Dudley Smith, the hymn writer, was a good friend of mine, sent me a lecture he'd given on hymns recently, and he was talking about the hymns which at home, at any rate in our state schools, are sung in primary school. Very few hymns are sung now in our secondary schools. But in our primary schools, hymns are still sung, but they are multicultural hymns, And you will not find any Christian nourishment in them at all. Isn't that extraordinary? Within a generation, the old great hymns, There is a a Green Hill Far Away, those have disappeared. And new hymns celebrating multicultural religion have taken their place. And as those children grow up, what memories will they have to look back on in a time of crisis? Often we do look back, don't we, to the things we heard and learned as children? They will look back to rubbish. So here is the first great prayer that in Edinburgh, which I'm sure is just as confused as London, put me right if I'm wrong, God's name, as our pastor prayed just now, may be hallowed again as the one Lord in heaven and earth. And my prayer is that Paul may preach this God and this one Lord Jesus Christ as the center of our thinking. There's so much man-centered preaching today, isn't there? And what we want is God-centered preaching preaching that lifts him up and reveals who he is and tells it as it is so that we know who God is and we can fear him as well as love him and we can speak to him as well as listen to him. Let's look now at the second prayer. Back then to 1 Timothy. uh, 1 Timothy. It's any age that causes you to be like that. Don't worry. You'll get there one day. 1 Kings 18. I find the second request fascinatingly tucked away there in verse 36b. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. My dear friends, I want you to use your imagination as though you were a comparatively young person and you saw that scene that day. You saw the hundreds of prophets of Baal and Asherah. I imagine, don't you, they were robed in rich vestments. They were certainly well fed because it says that they fed at Jezebel's table. And I think it was a jolly good table, wouldn't you? So I should think that they were sleek and fat. 
And there they were, 400, 500, 600, a very impressive turnout as they were there in their ranks. And over against them, there's our old friend Elijah. He's only got one coat, camel hair garment, which has been darned a number of times by the widow. It's held together by an old leather belt. He's got a few sandwiches in his pocket. Uh, they're not what you might call rock, uh, Roxborough Hotel sandwiches. They're locust and honey. However, there's good protein in locust and energy in honey. And they'll hold him together, won't they? So there he is. There he is in his old garment, his old leather belt. This gaunt, amazing figure with his little packet of sandwiches. And you're a young person and you come on the scene and you're asking the question, where does the truth lie here? Who is going to bring me into the presence of God? Who's got God on their side? I don't think there's any doubt, is there, that if you didn't know anything about these things, you would plow for the prophets of Baal. When I stood up in the pulpit at St. Helens, Tuesday after Tuesday, I would stand there in a grey suit and a tie, rather as I am today. And about a quarter of a mile, half a mile away, there was another city church. And the minister there was a very likable, thoughtful and pleasant man, but he was the leader of gay liberation in the Church of England. I imagine a 17 or 18 year old coming into the city in the early 1960s and being told it's worthwhile to go to a city church. There are some music recitals and there are some sermons and quite a lot of people go along to St. Helens and I believe some people go along to St. Sonsos as well. So he tries them all out. He doesn't know much. And when he goes to the other church that I referred to just now, the man standing in the pulpit has got a grey suit and a tie and he's about the same age as I am. Then he comes to St. Helens why should he think that I'm telling the truth and the other man is not? He's just as sincere as I am. But he's not actually telling the truth. But how should anybody know? So I found myself praying that as those young people came in and listened, and I only had 21 minutes, I had to stop on the dot. I used to pray, Lord, may they be convinced that what I'm saying is that of a servant of yours. But of course, there's a condition, isn't there? If I'm going to claim to be a servant of God, what is the condition? Well, look at your text. Let it be known that I am your servant and what? Have done all these things at your command. Who is the man who is saying what God told him to say? Who is the man, as Jeremiah said, who stood in the presence of God and listened and then said the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth? That's how I shall know if it's a servant of God. He's a man under orders. He's a man with a message that doesn't belong to him. He's a man not on an ego trip. He has done all these things at your command. There's the condition. He's a man under authority. So he doesn't follow the crowd. He doesn't uh, add to his message what is very exciting and is perhaps just around the corner and drawing a lot of people. He certainly doesn't take away from the message which has destroyed so many ministries. And if he says what God has to say, it will startle people and it will offend some people. But God will have been heard. 
So will you pray that for Paul and for the others who occupy this pulpit? Will you pray that they will preach about God so that people will know who the true God is? And will you pray that as people from the outside come in and listen, people who are quite clueless and completely confused, they will realize that what these men are saying is what God has said, neither more nor less. They will realize they're listening to a servant of God. What is the third prayer? Well, you might easily overlook it. It comes at the end of verse 37. I'll read verse 37 again, and I want you especially to notice the end because it's so important. Answer me again, O Lord, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God. By the way, Lord in capital letters always means the God of the covenant, the God who entered into relationship with his people. May they know that the God of Israel is the true God and what? that you are turning their hearts back. And the emphasis, if you've got a red pen, take it out and underline the little word you. You are turning their heart back. What we want people to see is that when a life has been touched by the Spirit of God, it is unmistakably of God and not of man. I used, on Tuesday morning, when the telephone became quite out of control, to slip away to the old British Museum. Some of you may remember it. And I would go into the reading room where nobody can get you. At least that was true in those days. And I found that in two hours in the reading room, early on a Tuesday morning, I could do more in preparing my lunch hour sermon than in the whole week before. Sometimes I would finish early, and then I would just get up quietly and tiptoe around the books in the library, some of them very ancient, some of them fascinating. And on one occasion, I found some Victorian commentaries of the Bible, dated about 1890, and I pulled one down, and as it happened, I looked up the story of Elijah. And I became more and more fascinated, because I found that in some of the Victorian commentaries, about 1890, there was still a, an acceptance of the fact that this was supernatural. God had worked. God had caused the fire to fall. But that around that date, there were commentaries beginning to say it might not have been supernatural. Remember, 1819 is the great, 1890 is the great time when faith was shaken to the core in Britain when Darwin and uh, Huxley and others were in their prime. And so I went on looking up these Victorian commentaries, and I found as the 90s went on that some of them said it might have been a lightning strike in the middle of the day. The water might have been naphthi and therefore inflammable. And Elijah may have had some strong glass by which to focus the rays of the burning midday sun and therefore cause everything come alight. That's 1890 to to the end of the century. And of course became commonplace afterwards. Now I don't know what you think about it, but I'm quite sure in the cafes, I don't know what kind of cafes they had in those days, they may have been like the ones I see down the street, but I'm sure they did have them, don't you? People talking together over whatever it was, a glass of... uh, Well, I don't know what they'd have had in Canaan, do you? (laughs) But I know they'll be talking. Mm. You know, uh, my cousin was there up on Mount Carmel. Did I I ever tell you that? Well, that actually wasn't my cousin. It was my cousin's nephew. 
and he was pretty close to what was going on. He said there was a kind of smell there, and it's probable that that water was petrol-like. No, 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 said somebody on the other side of the table. You've got it all wrong. Uh, I used to live there on Mount Carmel, and I know very well what the weather conditions were like, and often in the middle of the day there would be a lightning flash. I guess that's really what happened. Mr. Barman, get me another glass, will you, says somebody else. Obviously, these people don't know what they're talking about. I had a friend who had a friend who had a friend who had a friend who was there, and he said he was perfectly sure that Elijah had this very powerful glass which focused the rays of the sun, and that's why it all went out, really quite simple. He did it. Clever fellow, wasn't he? And that's what people think today. I think of a chap called Phillips, who was soundly converted at St. Helens early in my time. And within a couple of weeks, Grandpa came up post-haste from the country. Post-haste to see what had changed his grandson and who'd been manipulating him and who'd been getting at him and who'd been exploiting him and who'd been brainwashing him. My assistant at that time was a particularly attractive and able man. It would be quite natural if Grandpa would say to himself, I know what's happened, my, my grandson has got in the ho- in, into the toils of this man. I shall get him away from St. Helens and he'll soon grow out of it. This is only a phase that he's going through. We live in an age when there are many cults, many sectarian leaders, many, many who are seeking to cause people to follow them. And it's amazing what they can do. We have to learn to be skeptical about many claims that are made, don't we? I used to teach the young people at St. Helens that great word of Jesus in, is it Mark 13? Don't believe them. Don't believe those who say they come in Christ's name. Don't believe them. Learn to be discriminating. And learn to know what are the marks of God turning people's hearts back again. Because they're quite distinctive, the fruit of the Spirit. If, if I may put it rather crudely like this, I've seen men in 24 hours lose all their cursing, all their use of the name of Christ and Jesus overnight. It's as though somebody had got a piece of soap and washed their mouth out. That's the work of the Spirit, isn't it? Lord, I want you to show people that we haven't been brainwashing people, we haven't been manipulating them, we haven't been signing them up in an underhanded way. We've been pointing them to you, and you've done a work in their hearts, and no one can mistake it. That's what we're going to pray for. So what are you praying for? Well, I hope you're praying for these things. Let's look at them again. When you look at the text, they're so simple. They're so powerful, they're so contemporary, they're so right. Lord, we pray that through the ministry of Paul today and in the days to come, and through the ministry of this church and all the witnessing Christians here, for we've all got a part, people will come to understand that the God we're talking about is the true God, the God who created and the God who judges. Notice, by the way, that those are the two things that the devil wants to rub out. He's hard at work in this year rubbing out the idea of creation. And all the time he's rubbing out the idea that there'll be a judge at the end of time. So if he can rub out the end and the beginning, then he makes makes us have what is a meaningless life. We're just here, flotsam and jetsam. So we pray that 
from our preaching and teaching, people will know who God really is. People will know that those who speak in his name do so because they've been commanded to do so and they say what they've been told to say. And we pray that when God works, it will be recognized as the work of God and not as the work of men. Let's pray. Our gracious God, thank you that through the scriptures we listen again to Elijah praying on that day. Really up against it, a minority of one. With the people around totally confused and idolatrous and uh, immoral. And we, we are so thankful that we see this man lifting up his heart and lips in prayer. And we ask that we may learn from him this morning, that we may be refreshed by his prayer, and that we may follow his example. We ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.